This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is novelist Alice McDermott. She's the author of eight novels, including Charming Billy, which won the National Book Award for Fiction. Her books After This, At Weddings and Wakes, and That Night, all were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Her latest novel, called The Ninth Hour, takes place in the early 20th century and loosely follows three generations of a Catholic family in Brooklyn. The family is haunted by a suicide that also serves as the impetus for an order of nuns to step in and care for the widowed wife and her baby. The novel explores questions of faith, superstition, sacrifice, and forgiveness. We began the interview with McDermott discussing the meaning of the title, The Ninth Hour. The Ninth Hour refers to, um, in what's called the Liturgy of the Hours, the regular uh, prayers that are said um, in Christian communities. Uh, the Ninth Hour would be equivalent to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Ninth Hour of the Day. In the Old Testament tradition, that would be the time of sacrifice. In the New Testament tradition, it's the time that Christ dies on the cross. Um, So late afternoon, mid-afternoon, well into the day, the time to pause, reflect. I can't say it was a title that I had from the very beginning, but as the story sort of began to take shape for me, it was very much there. Um, So for me, it was... Uh, something about ritual, something about sacrifice, clearly. Um, But I also thought um, of that moment just after 3 o'clock. And it seemed to me, as the story unfolded, and I thought more about this, that at that moment in the New Testament, when Christ dies on the cross, nothing is certain. you know, for the believers, it's, so now what? <laughs> you know, this guy is, he's dead. What do we do? Was he something special or was he just a man? Um, for non-believers, it's sort of the same thing. This guy who thought he was something special is dead, but now what? Um, and I just began to feel, and I think this is very much tied to the way the story is narrated, that that kind of stillness, that's kind of uncertainty. Um, sometimes it has hope in it, sometimes it has despair in it, and that's all mixed up. Nothing, ha- nothing is certain. It seemed to me that's really faith, any kind of religious faith in the 21st century. I think there's a lot of sort of holding our breath. Believers aren't really sure. Non-believers seem to be sure, but then they're not. <laughs> um, uh, that that moment of stillness and waiting to see what's next. You know, you didn't really start with this title. What did you start with? Did you start with an image, an idea, some questions about fairness, you know, living on earth versus heaven? (laughs) Where'd you start? You know, every novel, uh, as I'm sure you've heard, um, has has a different genesis. This novel actually started some years ago, um, with a conversation that I had with a friend, you know, D.C. lawyer, um, 
bright and interesting guy who read everything um, and very interested in history. And somehow in the course of the, you know, after dinner conversation over a glass of wine, we were talking about, I don't know what, but he told a story about a vague memory that he had. Um, He grew up uh, way upstate New York, around Watertown, um, of uh, some relatives of his, a great aunt, a great uncle's, who uh, had as a boarder a man who had served as a substitute for one of their relatives in the Civil War. And this man lived with him, them for the rest of their lives. Um, and that just fascinated me. And, you know, I had you know, heard about this substitute uh, thing that happened during the war, you know, when people, normally people of wealth, could hire someone to serve for their sons uh, or themselves in in the Union Army so that they wouldn't have to go to war. A lot of immigrants were hired. um, Poor rural people would be hired um, who were not subject to the draft themselves. This happened in both the Union Army and the Southern Army. So I knew that historically. um, But just it just hit me. um, And 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 out of curiosity alone, I started reading about it, how it was codified, how much did it cost. There was a time when it was about $300, which would have been a lot of money in those days, um, to hire someone to be a substitute. Um, Lincoln actually did sort of a PR thing, and towards the end of the war, um, his people went out from the White House and found this young guy on the street and said, hey, would you like to be a substitute for Lincoln? And it, it was very 21st century in, obviously, it was just done for the press. Um, even Lincoln had a substitute. So I wasn't looking so much for a story. I don't think of myself as a historical novelist. Um, but I liked the idea and, and the kind of novelist I am. Rather than fact, I go to metaphor. So... <laughs> So right away, the idea of a substitute, someone who puts himself in harm's way so that someone else can stay safe and live out his life and have children and grandchildren, that that idea, obviously, um, for someone raised in the Catholic tradition, brings up he who died so that we all might live. So that brought me to the ninth hour. <laughs> You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alice McDermott, author of The Ninth Hour and seven other novels. So when I think about it, I don't have that much vocabulary for Catholicism, but one of the things I walked away with, I mean, chapter after chapter and then at the end, was more this idea of karma. And I don't know how that what, oh, sure. what word that would be in Catholicism. But I felt like so many characters ended up either living out some kind of positive or negative for what a family member dead or alive had done that they were trying to make some kind of restitution for, or just thinking about the the ripple effects of the guilt maybe when someone goes to war for you and how many generations are now alive because your ancestor stayed alive. And it all kind of reminded me of this chain of connections and karma. And I just wondered what you thought of that. That's very accurate. And and that was one of the big things I wanted to explore, not only 
um, those the notions of selflessness um, that that's wrapped up in I'll go, you stay, you live, I'll die. Um, but also that that notion of gratitude. Exactly. Um, how many generations do you have to look back and continue to be grateful, <laughs> you know, and how long does the gratitude last? And, and it is a kind of karma. I mean, you know, in, in Christian tradition, you might say it's, it's grace. In the literary tradition, you might say it's fate. And, and that, in many ways, is, is why the story is told in the way it's told, because it's told through the perspective of what you might call a tw- the 21st century generation. And so in some ways, there is this, uh, the universe, uh, the sense of the universe writing itself and reverberating with uh, the actions of one generation and then the next. But it is also the storyteller. This is what we do. (laughs) The storyteller finding those reverberations, maybe even creating them if they don't exist. That's where the desire to find connectedness from one generation to the next generation, even if it's guilt, even if it's a, the burden of gratitude, um, but so that each life is not forgotten, that the span of one life is in some way revisited in subsequent lives. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I was really interested in when you talk about the connections between generation, but it's also the connections between the events of our lives and the the sort of whether it's burden or or sense of duty that these Catholic women grow under, whether they were a nurse, uh, a nurse slash nun or just um, a layperson, that we start, for example, with a suicide that ricochets through these generations. And so Jim is married to Annie and he commits suicide. And a nun, Sister St. Savior, is walking down the street and ends up turning into the building to to help because there was a fire. And she didn't, she, she wasn't asked to go there. She was coming home from work. She was tired. She had to go to the bathroom. Why did she, <laughs> why did she turn into the building to help? She, she didn't have to. Or did she? Well, yeah, I suppose that's that's an eternal question. <laughs> um, how much free will she actually had uh, at that moment? When you think of a woman, she's a um, she's relatively older for for that day and age. Um, as you say, she's tired. She's put in a long day. She's been uh, begging for alms um, out in front of the Woolworths um, in the cold. Um, and 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 she is reluctant, and yet she does. Um, so is that the habit of a lifetime? Um, no pun intended. Um, uh, is is that a kind of fate working? Is it an inevitability that the individual cannot resist, um, given who she is, given circumstances? She initially feels God wants me here, um, and there's something here for me to do because she discovers 
that Annie is expecting. There's a, there will be a child that will have to be taken care of since she's now widowed. And Sister St. Savior thinks, ah, this is a, a, a job for me. By the end of the chapter, she realizes that there's a much younger nun who will be taking care of this unborn baby. Um, that for Sister St. Savior, her job is pretty much done. She's come to the end of her life. Um, and she's kind of angry at God <laughs> for for luring her in only to get the younger nun there, only to be the draw to the younger nun. Um, so it's a complicated, even in this character, um, she she's not completely happy with what has become her fate and probably doesn't quite understand it herself. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alice McDermott, author of The Ninth Hour and seven other novels. Basically, the whole book, I think, asks these big questions about the burden of life versus heaven and who gets out of it alive in in some ways. (laughs) Because, for instance, you know, because Jim had committed suicide, Annie totally accepted the fact that he couldn't really be buried in a Catholic burial and that she didn't really know where he ended up being buried. And that was just, I wouldn't even say that it was like penance. It was just the facts for her that you don't get good if you've done bad. And I felt like (laughs) so many characters in there, faith was a logical equation about fairness. Yes, yes. Um, And and in many ways, it's um, it's very clear to them. Um, these are the rules, um, and if you've accepted the rules, um, you, you take the good with the bad. If if you're going to believe in a reward of eternal life, well, that doesn't mean much if that reward can't be taken away. If you do good and you get to go to heaven, doesn't mean much if if you do bad, you still get to go to heaven. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a it's a very rigorous and in some ways uncomplicated kind of faith. If I accept any kind of eternity, these are the rules about it. And the rules come with with the faith and and you accept them both. I felt like the characters, you know, the main characters, Annie and Sally, accepted that. And in some ways, especially Sally, who is the child that she bears and who we really follow through most of the book, through her childhood, growing up with the nuns, um, doing the laundry with them in the basement, and then wanting to become a nun, and then ending up marrying a neighbor. And we see for her, her choices about this earthly life and what is fair in this earthly life and what people she loves should have versus heaven. Yeah, she, I mean, she chooses life in some way. (laughs) Um, She chooses to give up her notion of a reward in heaven so that uh, the people she loves, her mother in particular, can have a good life on earth. And in some ways, I, I guess that for me, that's sort of upping the ante of the idea of sacrifice. To say, you know, all of our lives and when we die, um, so we might as well make the most of the time that we're here is great. Um, but for someone who believes that there's something beyond the end of life um, and still to say, 
but I'm going to choose, I'm going to give that up so that this brief moment when we're alive will be better. Um, that seems to me a tremendous kind of sacrifice. I've, I've, I've joked that, um, back to the idea of the ninth hour, when um, in the New Testament, when Christ is dying on the cross, he turns to the good thief who's also dying and says, you know, within this hour, you will be with me in heaven. And in some ways, it's like uh, we can get through this because, boy, we're earning something much better. But in the character of Sally and in uh, one of the nuns, Sister Jean, you have a character who says, I am making this sacrifice and I'm also giving up that wonderful idea of heaven. So in some ways, they they out-sacrifice even Christ, you know, because Christ was looking for the reward and he was, and he was sure of it. They're saying, I'm giving up the reward. That's how much I love the people here on mortal earth. So Sally, she's born. Her, her mother gets taken in by the convent to do the wash. So she has money and a place to go. And she basically grows up in the basement there and surrounded by all these nuns who love and care for her. And we see her in various times in her life. And she does feel a calling. I mean, we, we learn um, from her that she feels the calling. And when she decides she wants to be a nun, she goes to Chicago and she goes on the train. And this is what, again, reminded me a little bit of Buddhism because she reminded me of the Buddha leaving his palace. It's not that mm-hmm. she hadn't seen sickness and death, but she hadn't really seen the more depraved side of humanity like on her own without being shielded. And most of this had to do with People lying, people taking advantage of her, learning kind of more about how blatant sex can be discussed and and used as a commodity out there in the world. And she was like stunned. I mean, I don't think she came back. I don't think she came back enlightened like the Buddha. But I'm just wondering about writing this scene and including these things and well, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there is a kind of shelter, not just the the literal shelter of of being a, a child of the convent, um, but being of a neighborhood. You know, being in Brooklyn at that time. Um, you know, she again, they're they're still not wealthy people. She has shared her bed with her mother in their one bedroom tenement uh, all her life. In some ways, I did think of it, it was a kind of descent into hell, but it was also just a going out into the world. And for a a young woman um, who is observant, I mean, it, it was very important, I thought, that it first be established that she is someone who pays attention. Um, she is someone who notices, um, and in her childish way, she turns that into a show, a joke. She she mimics everyone, but out into the world, she can't close her eyes to it. Um, so she notices every grimy detail um, of this train full of strangers, an overnight train. Um, I guess I've spent enough time on overnight transportation um, of and every sort to know. Um, that at some point in the middle of the night, it becomes hellish, even if it's a first class <laughs> transatlantic trip. There's always that weirdness of I'm surrounded by strangers. Um, we've been spending too much time together. Um, everybody's sort of uh, looking a little dirty and um, and a little too human. And so I wanted that that long, endless ride with strangers to be 
really her first journey, as you say, like the Buddha out into the world with her eye, with her sharp eyes already established. So there was no turning away from it. There's no um, putting a, even a religious gloss on it. Oh, these poor souls. They're awful. <laughs> Human beings are awful. And by the end of the train ride, she's had enough of them. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alice McDermott, author of The Ninth Hour and seven other novels. What is your process then of putting all these lofty ideas that we've been talking about? <laughs> and maybe it can come, you know, you're talking about it after the fact. So it's not like you're telling me all this stuff before you wrote the book. But right. how, how you how you put that into character and scenes and I mean, I don't know if you can even explain that. Yeah, I think that I, I appreciate that question because I think that's really important. You know, as, as a teacher, I, I find it's something I struggle with, with students so much, um, young writers who have all kinds of marvelous ideas, but the ideas crowd out the life on the page. Um, you know, you come away from a story saying, well, I can tell that's a really smart author, but I don't know who the characters are. <laughs> um, so for me, it's um, in some ways, some of the things that, again, you can say in the aftermath of, of writing a novel, um, you can say with great confidence, this was what it was, it's about, as I'm doing. <laughs> you know. On the other hand, in the composition of the novel, for me, character always has to come first. My ideas have to be in some ways put aside and their lives, the, the texture of their lives, the complexity of the, their way of thinking, their past, their present, um, how they use words uh, internally and externally, how they speak, but also how they think, um, who they are in the given world of the novel has to come first. They have to always be authentically themselves, not as I want them to be so that I can make a larger point um, about anything. Um, there's actually, um, there's a paragraph early on dealing with Jim, the suicide, that I thought about as a moment where I was really uh, cautious about not letting metaphor and theme um, and all my um, neat and shiny ideas <laughs> about suffering and selflessness um, overwhelm the character. Um, do you want me to read that? Does that? Would that would that be great. Yeah. Jim, as as we were saying, is is uh, the uh, the suicide um, and his suicide opens the novel. Um, and I suppose I was doubly cautious there because I didn't want to romanticize the suicide, the act of suicide, but I also wanted to keep it very individually uh, his act, not a, um, not a, a sort of guidebook to the psychology of people who end up taking their lives or trying to. And I knew that this book in many ways w would be about... Um, time, as we were saying, connections over time um, across generations. So I didn't want, I needed to bring time into it, but I didn't want time to be my idea. I wanted it to be Jim's thought. So 
um, let me just read this and maybe you can see what I'm struggling to explain. <laughs> His trouble was with time. Bad luck for a train man, even on the BRT. His trouble was he liked to refuse time. He delighted in refusing it. He would come to the end of a long night to the inevitability of 5 a.m., that boundary, that abrupt wall toward which all the night's pleasures ran, drink, talk, sleep, or Annie's warm flesh. And while other men, poor sheep, gave in every morning, turned like lambs in the chute from the pleasures of sleep or drink or talk or love to the duties of the day, he had been aware since his childhood that with the easiest refusal, eyes shut, he could continue as he willed. I'm not going, he would only have to murmur. I won't be constrained. Of course, it didn't always require refusing the whole day. Sometimes just the pleasure of being an hour or two late was enough to remind him that he, at least, was his own man, that the hours of his life and what more precious commodity did he own belonged to himself alone. So I think you can see there, I want this this guy just lost his job. He's a trainman on the Brooklyn Rapid Transit. Um, he's an Irishman who's always running late, which is, which is one of the things Irishmen tend to do. <laughs> um, uh, and yet he's a young man, he's 32 years old, who has that stubbornness of saying, no, it's not your life, this is my life. Um, you can't tell me what to do, this is my life. So I wanted to get a portrait of him that was unique, believable, authentic, but also brought in some of the larger issues that I hope the novel would in some way address. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alice McDermott, author of The Ninth Hour and seven other novels. One thing that seemed like it would be really fun, and I don't know if it was or not, or if it were like recalled your childhood, but was there were so many nuns, and it seems like naming the nuns would have been a fun thing to do. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and, and, you know, the, here's where I begin to learn some things. Um, most of the research that I do, I do sort of after the fact um, so that I don't, I don't end up having all this neat information that I surgically insert into the novel, whether it belongs or not. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I lose patience with especially historical fiction where um, you read something and you're just like, oh, good for you. You looked that up <laughs> and it ended up in the novel. Great. Um, probably didn't belong there. Uh, so I try to I try not to do the research first. I try to do the research once I've understood what I need to know to bring the characters fully to life. Um, so, yeah, I had this vague idea of all these wonderful orders, um, but then I start, and since I was making up the order in the book is a fictional order, it's a amalgam of, of a, a lot of orders that actually existed. Um, but so for my research, I read about the founding of a half a dozen uh, religious uh, orders of religious women, 
um, and then just started finding all these marvelous names of these orders. Um, and what it said to me, and in a sort of very reassuring way, is, um, you know, we look at nuns, uh, especially nuns of that era, because they're all wearing the same habits um, as somehow identical. Um, but there's so much, there's something so fanciful um, and, and yes, and romantic and, and poetic about the names that they chose individually for themselves, you know, Sister Illuminata. I mean, that's a name you choose. That's not a given name. Uh, who chooses to call themselves Illuminata? You know, this is, you know, she's just a, a, a shuffling woman who does the laundry. But there's an inner life there that's indicated by the name she gave herself. Um, and, and it's true of the orders, too. Um, it, in many ways, it, to me, it was like found poetry. Sister Servants um, and uh, the Little Order, the Sisters of Charity, the Sisters of Wisdom, you know? I mean, how much humility is there when you're calling yourselves the Sisters of Wisdom? Um, so for me, the naming of things hinted at, um, it doesn't take a lot, just pause and think about that, um, hinted at the marvelous complexity of these women um, as it's demonstrated, even though they seem to be orderly and all the same, but the names they've chosen for themselves really indicates um, there's a lot going on behind those habits. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I had something else in mind, but given our conversation, I just pulled out um, something that that I've, I've been thinking about. This is a, a passage from, of all things, Saul Bellow's Nobel Prize acceptance speech. Um, and I pulled it out uh, a couple of weeks ago, mostly because of what's going on in the country, um, <clears throat> as you know. Um, I've used it some years back, in you know, in craft talks and in in uh, talking to students, um, but wow, it really it it, it spoke to me again uh, recently. So um, it's not a piece of fiction; it's part of a speech. But um, I think it's very beautiful. Here it is: the essence of our real condition, the complexity, the confusion, the pain of it, is shown to us in glimpses, in proofs true impressions. This essence reveals and then conceals itself. When it goes away, it leaves us again in doubt, but we never seem to lose our connection with the depth from which these glimpses come. The sense of our real powers, powers we seem to derive from the universe itself, also comes and goes. We are reluctant to talk about this because there is nothing we can prove, because our language is inadequate, and because few people are willing to risk talking about it. They would have to say, there is a spirit, and that is taboo. So almost everyone keeps quiet about it, although almost everyone is aware of it. The value of literature lies in these intermittent true impressions. A novel moves us back and forth between the world of objects, of actions, of appearances, 
and that other world from which these true impressions come and which moves us to believe that the good we hang on to so tenaciously in the face of evil so obstinately is no illusion. I think it's that last bit that um, inspired me to go find this quote again. The good we hang on to so tenaciously is no illusion. I love that. Can you read a passage that you wrote that was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? There's a, a scene early on that might be a little startling. Um, it's the beginning of the second chapter for the reader after the first chapter about Jim's suicide and Sister St. Savior and all that. It begins, as I say, maybe a little startlingly. I, I know it was, this was a, both a chapter and a paragraph that I sort of had in and out <laughs> of the novel um, because I thought maybe this is too jarring. Um, you know, will the reader still be with me? I think of myself as a reader first and a writer second, so I suppose my sympathies as I'm writing are always with the reader. So I'll just read the, the opening of this the second chapter that follows the story of Jim's suicide. Our father rode sitting upright in the high baby carriage like a boy in a small boat. It was his first memory. Displaced as he had been from the shade under the perambulator's hood, occupied now by yet another bundled infant, he spread out his arms and clutched the sides of the carriage, a boy in a storm-tossed rowboat. His mother, pushing the thing, was behind him. She navigated the broken sidewalks, the curbs, and the street crossings with a banging determination that caused the whole contraption, high wheels and springs and the hard black body of the carriage itself to shudder and quake, rearing at the curbs, bucking at the cobblestones, swinging left or right around pokey pedestrians, dog droppings, the spilled contents of fruit markets, dry goods stores, garbage cans. He rode every undulation, every swerve with his spine straight his arms outspread and his hands fixed tightly around the gunwales of the carriage bed. He looked straight on. There were trees and cars, dustbins and lampposts on the left. On the right, buildings, graystone and brick with stoops and children and speared fence tops. But he kept his eyes glued to the horizon that began just above the arc of the black hood, focusing on the world ahead like a sea captain navigating an ice storm. He was petrified. So there's a lot of reasons why I struggled with that <laughs> point of view um, and, um, and refrain. And, um, and the scene goes on. There are lots of little babies, twin infants in the carriages, another little boy holding on to his mother's skirt, uh, the father figure sitting upright in the carriage, um, who was to, who will be Sally sitting upright in the next carriage. There were just a lot of moving parts in this scene. Mm. Sometimes just the basic getting, getting uh, characters in and out of a scene um, 
and making sure that the reader's not going, what is, is the hardest part of your job? Where do you write? I have an office at home. Actually, these days I have two since uh, we're empty nesters. One, the office I've always written into, which is cluttered and messy. And then when I need to either just uh, rewrite or get away from it all, um, I have a little nook in my older son's bedroom, which is my uncluttered space to write. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, You know, I've never had to do that consciously. Um, I think life always pulls you away from writing. Certainly when my kids were small, that witching hour of three o'clock, and maybe now that I think of it, this is why I was so interested in three (laughs) o'clock. For years, three o'clock was the time I had to stop writing because the kids were coming home from school. Um, But uh, even even with uh, kids all grown, life, things to be done, the dog needs to be walked and... um, and a friend wants to have a drink, and wouldn't it be nice to go to the movies or the theater? That brings me away. I don't have to think. I don't have to plan it. (laughs) It happens. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? These days, I would say probably in my last few novels, no one um, but my editor. And pretty much when I'm ready, which usually means when I think I've gotten to the end of the book, that's when I show them what I've got. Jonathan Galassi has been my editor through all of this when I had just the first hundred pages of my first novel. And he is infinitely patient um, and is happy to be quiet and um, is happy not to get in there and mess things up on me. We don't always have the same literary taste, but I have tremendous respect for his brilliance. Um, And so he's the first one who um, I have a conversation with this book, especially, except for the first chapter, which had been published as a short story. He had no idea what this novel was even going to be about until just about a year ago, I sent him the whole thing. Here it is. It's done. What do you think? So it's, it's nice. I think I'm probably at this point, my own harshest critic slash editor And so I don't put that burden on too many other people. How have you dealt with rejection? It's been some time now that um, I've stopped reading my own reviews or reviews of my own work, good or bad. I just don't read them. I I just, uh, I'm grateful for the good ones. I'm grateful for the attention that even the the reviews that raise objections might, uh, at least they've paid attention. That's fine. But I just learned, much to my surprise, because I thought as a, you know, as a first novelist that every review would be like a little workshop and I would be a better writer. <laughs> and you very quickly learn these reviews are written for everybody else in the universe but the writer. Probably most especially the praise. You don't want those words in your head when you're back trying to be honest and authentic and not self-conscious in creating your next book. So I suppose my way of of handling rejection is just pretending it doesn't happen. (laughs) And what is your favorite word? You know, that's always a fascinating question, and it makes me realize how fickle I am. Um, Right now, I've I've been thinking of this word daily, uh, and it'll become apparent why, but I still think it's a beautiful word. Solstice. What a beautiful word, and it, and it works well with summer solstice and winter solstice. 
it's it's just one of those um maybe if i were a nun i would be sister solstice wouldn't that be <laughs> wouldn't that be edgy You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Alice McDermott, author of The Ninth Hour and seven other novels. You could follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.